Today I am joined by an exceptional researcher. He is widely regarded as one of the scientists whose work has built the foundations for today's progress in artificial intelligence. A Turing Award winner with more than 750,000 citations. Of course, naturally a full professor at the University of Montreal. I could go on, but most of all, he's a fantastic human and I am delighted to be in conversation with Joshua Bengio. Thank you, and thanks for the nice words. Well, thank you for all of your work over the, the previous decades. You and Jeff Hinton and Jan LeCun have sometimes been called the three musketeers of deep learning. Uh, and I'm curious, you, you've heard that description. Which musketeer do you most closely affiliate with, do you think? This dates from a time when Deep learning was not at all a popular endeavor in machine learning or in the AI in general. Um, so we we have to we had to really really stand defending these ideas for a number of years at that point. Yes, it was uh, not very popular when it when you first started to work on these these processes. I will give you my suggestion as to which musketeer you are. By the way, Joshua, I I, I see you as Aramis, who ChatGPT okay. tells me is intellectual and romantic, somewhat pensive, with aspirations towards a religious life, but very, very skilled in, in combat. Uh, and right. uh, I, I'll ex explain why I think that, which is essentially, in the last couple of years, you have switched the focus of your research towards really humanistic dimensions of, of AI. That felt a little bit Aramis to me. Maybe we could start at the beginning. As a researcher in the field of artificial intelligence, how do you define AI and has your definition of it changed over the course of your career? Well, I think the part that's really difficult to define is the intelligence Then just stick the word artificial says it's in machines. And the way I think about intelligence um, is taking appropriate decisions. But in order to do that, you need understanding. In fact, you could be intelligent and just have understanding and take no decision, but it would be difficult to see that you have understanding. And in order to get both understanding, as in like having a good inter you know, internal model of how things work and being able to achieve goals to take good decisions, you need learning because you know, the, the nature of the world and the ways to optimize our decisions are not something that are given to us. We have to acquire that through experience and computation. And that's what learning is about. And, and of course, if you take a decision in the world, you'll have an action in the world. So the environment will have changed as a consequence of the decision you've taken. So you need to be able to learn because you have to observe that new different environment to make your next decision. Yes. In fact, it's even more tricky than that. Given any life experience, rationally speaking, we can't rule out a lot of possible explanations for all our life, a lot of possible world models. And when we acquire new information from data, for example, uh, we need to revise those beliefs. And humans do that, by the way, to some extent, not perfectly. We'd like to build machines that have similar capabilities. It's fascinating, this idea that 
you know, we look at how humans learn and, and we can see how we exhibit intelligence. We obviously exhibit that intelligence in differing ways uh, from individual to individual. And in also, the, the, there are many expressions of what that intelligence might be. And, you know, you just see it in any organization. There are certain organizations where the intelligence that you need to have is dealing with the squishy complexity of human relationships. And there are other organizations where the intelligence you need is very specific, tangible, quantitative. Uh, And those different expressions clearly form part of what it is to be intelligent. Will the same be true in artificial intelligences, do you think? Yeah, certainly. And in fact, because of my definition of intelligence, you could be intelligent for some things. In other words, you have a lot of knowledge and skills in some domain, but you could be stupid in another domain, right? And humans vary in the areas of, of scale, of course. Uh, and we already see this with AI systems that are what we call narrow AIs that are really good at one type of problems. Mm. Now, we've seen a lot of progress, at least uh, to the layman in, in the last few years, in particular since November two thousand and. 22. And and my sense is, from the things that you've said publicly, that you think things are moving faster now in the last couple of years towards that artificial intelligence than perhaps you had expected. What was the specific turning point for you? What did you see that you didn't expect to see? Oh, the mastery of language, obviously. (laughs) Yeah. So the um, chat GPT mastery, the, the what yes. chat GPT delivered over the previous iterations of large language models from yes. a year or two earlier. Yeah. And in fact, going from 3.5 to 4, GPT-4, there was also a noticeable improvement in many areas. And language, well, language is important because it's the glue that connects us. It's the social you know, fabric and it opens the door to accessing huge quantities of knowledge about the world that humans have put down in you know, uh, writing and forms that uh, computers can digest. And in some sense, that corpus of text, the trillions of words that uh, ChatGPT or GPT-4 is trained on, is reflecting many, many different models of the world that we have imperfectly expressed through our own subjectivity and some ways of expression are much more subjective, poetry or fiction or my diary, and yeah. some have a, a veneer of more more objectivity, for example, scientific research or economic mm-hmm. statistics. But there is this, this corpus out there which, in some sense, reflects the collective human view of what it is to be in the world. Is, is that too grand a statement, do you think? No, no it, it's absolutely right. Now, Uh, researchers are quick to point out that there's still a lot of things that are pieces of knowledge that are not uh, visible in that corpus, for example, you know, bodily experience and things like this. But still, uh, if you did master the knowledge in such a corpus, you could do a lot of good in the world and a lot of damage. So think about if you're a scientist and you're learning about a science which you don't yourself experiment with, which right. means you're basically learning about it through, you know, language, books, reasoning, and then you can do things, right? You don't necessarily need to have a body in order to capture that language and exploit it. You've touched on one of my favorite uses for this, an area where I think these large language models will be 
have tremendous potential, which is that you know, the structure of science over the last 30 or 40 years has become more and more specialist and much less interdisciplinary. And the incentives that exist in professional academia and the funding structures force people to you know, narrow progressively. And, and I'm sure the PhDs that you may have seen recently are more narrow than the ones 30 years ago. And the beauty of an LLM, whether it's you know, GPT-4 or it's illicit, is that I can become interdisciplinary quite quickly. And I, you can ask questions. You can say, well, analogously, did some other field of study have a similar structure to this problem? And you know, where were the uh, avenues of inquiry? I, I mean, it, it, that, that feels like it could really deliver some benefits to, to pushing the frontiers of knowledge. For sure. For sure. I use it to inquire about areas I'm not familiar with and, and then get actual papers in those areas based on what chat GPT tells me, because I don't trust what it says, but it could of be course. suggestions for what to look for. How should we think about this idea that these systems are getting more, more powerful? I, I, we, we hear people say that quite a lot, both people who are boosting the technology and those who are concerned about the technology. But I feel it needs to be unpicked a little bit. We need to have a, 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 a sort of a clearer definition about what we mean when we say this is a system that is getting more powerful. Well, it's not the system because each right. system is a snapshot of our you know, AI capabilities. But it's if you look at the series of systems and the set of systems as they are you know, brought into the world by AI researchers and engineers, we can see the capabilities are on the rise and people have drawn those curves that really show what even looks like exponential improvements. There's a group that's been plotting these trends. I think they call themselves Epoch. They're really great. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So, so you, can, you can see that. But, but you know, as a researcher who's been tracking the field, it's very clear that the capabilities have been on the rise. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that it's going to continue, but I think we need to think about what if we continue at the same rate, you know, when will we hit human level or AGI? I think these are very, very important questions for business reasons for some people and safety reasons in my case. That level is uh, a really interesting and, and challenging one. I mean, I think back to the efficiency of the internal combustion engine. So there was there was a law of physics that said these things could not get more efficient than than they did. And we've been tending to that limit. You know, essentially, we hit it 70 or 80 years ago, and we've just been trying to you know inch millimeter by millimeter closer to it. And on the other hand, you have Moore's law, which was all which was about well, it was a social agreement about packing more transistors onto a chip. And Moore's law was always going to come to an end because of heat and quantum effects and uh, and so on. And Moore's law has been dying for 15 years. And it, it's, it's like a, a really dramatic death in a cowboy film where the character just staggers around but still keeps going. And, and yet we've seen progress in uh, the cost declines of compute, which is what Moore's law was uh, about consistently and keeps keeps going so when we think about the ways we're currently building ai with with llms in a way is there a is there a carno cycle law of physics that says this approach is just going to hit a limit and we'll need something else or is this much more like a kind of moore's law social fabric engineers can 
keep pushing this thing for a few more cycles. So, so first of all, about Moore's law, it you know the 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 physical constraints are really about like one chip. Yeah, a lot of the computational capabilities increases in the last decade have been thanks to parallelization. I mean, GPUs mm-hmm. are already about that, and if you right. have now these uh, you know server clusters with 10,000 10, or 50,000 GPUs. Well, we, we get the extra power not because each chip is, is sort of faster, but because we can parallelize and if it's right. a huge boost. Uh, but, but yeah, it, there's, no, there's no obvious upper limit to intelligence that we know that we can figure out. Um, of course, computer science tells us that some things are intractable, but we know from the you know, work on neural nets and also looking at human brains that you can get pretty good approximations that are tractable, right? So we exploit, if you want, our brain exploits heuristics to approximate calculations which seem intractable, like all the predictions we're making and so on. Um, and we also know that humans are not that great. I mean, like in specific areas, we, we can fail. Psychologists study these failures. And we also have examples in some specific domains when AI is doing a lot better than humans. So overall, there is no reason to think that human intelligence is the pinnacle of intelligence. We don't know how far we, you know, we, we could go up above yeah. that. Now, but the question is, do we know how we would get there? And, and I think a lot of people look at the epoch curves and they say scale is all you need and we can go further and we'll get more data in through you know, audio and video and, and real world experiences into these multimodal transformer models. Yeah. And, and other people, one of the other musketeers, Jan LeCun, uh, says, we're going to need new approaches. We're going to need systems that can learn representations of the world, learn to reason, learn to plan long action sequences as well. So I used to think that we needed fundamentally different ways of approaching AGI. But I've been kind of proven wrong in those beliefs with the advances in in LLMs. Right. So I'm going to just, you know, say it could be that more scaling will do it. But my if I had to make one bet, I would I would go with Jan. So I as a scientist, I think there are fundamental things missing. But but you know, I wouldn't put the future of humanity on that bet. <laughs> right. I I would put my research on that bet. So I'm looking for ways to address these limitations, and many others are, of course. Hmm. And so let's talk about what what it would mean once we get an, an AI or an AGI. We talked a little bit about needing to understand the environment and take decisions and maybe be able to plan across longer horizons and then work out what contingent decisions might be to make better choices. And one of the things that, that humans can, can do or at least we, some of us think we can do, is we can set our own objectives. We can yeah. decide explicitly that we want to be good at marathon running. Um, do, do, will an AGI, in order to be an AGI, have to have that capability to set its own objectives? When you have an RL agent that is a goal-directed so you, you can give it a goal. You, you have a neural net somewhere that takes the description of a goal and then it will execute a policy to try to reach it. It can also be generating its own goal, sub-goals in order to achieve the bigger goal. And this is, of course, how humans do it. 
So uh, we still have to improve how we can do these things in, in what's called hierarchical reinforcement learning, but there's no, doesn't seem that there's like a fundamental obstacle here. Well, the so, other question was just this idea of self-doubt. Oh, so current AI systems are not very good at that. And it's a major problem. I mean, it's a problem from the point of view of delivering a, a AI product. It, it says something with very high confidence that turns out to be false. Yeah. This is not good. And in fact, it could be an, a safety problem because if the AI proposes, say, an action that uh, a machine will execute and that action turns out to be you know, very harmful, even though the AI think it's fine according to the way it was programmed, then we are all in big trouble, especially if that AI is very powerful, like AGI or you know, smarter than humans. So that uh, introducing this idea of, of uncertainty becomes important, actually, from a, a safety standpoint. Yes, yes. And I think safety is, is a really important thing for us to, to understand. I mean, you've put so much effort into beneficial applications of AI and AI and climate change and so on, which I hope we'll, we'll talk about. Um, but, but I think significant concerns, certainly in the last couple of years, about the risks of rogue AI. And you wrote a blog post on this topic, and, and you, you came up with sort of three scenarios, a genocidal human, so humans using uh, this technology for, for, for bad uh, acts, um, the uh, scenario of instrumental goals, which is the unintended consequences of building AI systems, and the, the third scenario, which is the unintended consequences of the evolutionary pressures that might emerge between AI agents in the sense they, they compete with each other. The first scenario to me of, of all of those feels it's, it's kind of easier than the others, right? We've dealt with bad actors with bad technologies in the past. Easier to deal with? I'm not so convinced. Yeah, let's say, let's say the recipe for building or using an AGI is available to everyone. How do you make sure there isn't going to be one person? In fact, we know people who, you know, say they would be happy to see humanity replaced. It's a, it's a, it's a very difficult political problem and social problem. First of all, at the point where we have AGI, then AI systems like dual use, they can be used for good, but they could be essentially used as weapons. Now, think of what happens in a society when everybody has access to very powerful weapons. Uh, it's chaos. The second problem is that some threats give an advantage to the attacker. So think about designing and delivering a new pathogen that's going to kill everyone, you know, very quickly. Well, you know, it might take years for the attacker to find it. And if it takes years for the defender to find a solution, it's too late. Yes, but let's look at the, the, the reality of, you know, our, our social existence. It was 50 years ago, I think, that the anarchist cookbook came out and in it, it had instructions to make a, a pipe bomb. And when I first got on the internet, you could just download this from an FTP server and you know read the book. You can't do that now without someone knocking on your door a day later. But we didn't see a, 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 you know, an outbreak of pipe bombings um, after that. Even in a, a country like the, you know, the US where in lots of places people are allowed to own guns and there are more guns than people. And yes, the US has the highest incidence of you know, homicides through guns of any country in the world, it's still not chaos, right? Because the most powerful weapons that terrorists or criminals can have in their hands are not able to kill so many people. But if if the weapon that you have in your hand can kill millions or billions, well, the game is completely different. Yeah. So so help me through my, my logic here. So I, I 
I'm very, very sympathetic to to the logical flow that this argument takes, which is that it, it is possible to engineer agents that are more capable uh, than us, and they may engineer themselves, or they, it may have happened on another planet through a different process. And that secondly, agents that are more capable than us cannot be guaranteed to be aligned with our best interests. Uh, and and, I, and I, I can also agree... Well, I wouldn't say cannot. I would say we don't know how to do that. Right. Well, we, we don't know how to do that with the agents that we, we are engineering, but we perhaps yes. can't speak for en- agents that might be engineered, you know, in another galaxy that, that may oh, show sure. up at, at some for point. Sure. Um, the, the thing that I get uh, tripped up on in the argument, maybe or where I start to push back a little bit, is this idea that between where we are now and a world where everyone has a powerful AGI they can get access to, a lot of things need to happen. And I believe they can happen. But there is, there's research, there's deployment, there's a sheer materiality of the systems that we, we build. There are only so many H200 GPUs that, that NVIDIA can produce. TSMC needs five years to build a fab. I mean, there's a lot of things that, that add friction to, to the process. And when we look at um, previous examples of extremely powerful agents or technologies emerging, I think of large corporations um, there are closest parallel in my mind to super intelligent systems. What Apple can do far exceeds what any individual human can do. And the mechanisms we use to rein those systems in um, are, are, are relatively new. They wouldn't have made sense 60 or 70 years ago. We've had to co-evolve those mechanisms of social regulation alongside the, those technologies. And the same, I think, is true in financial services and, and the, you know, the backbone of trading and that, those sort of com- com- complex agent-driven systems with a single objective of profit. The way that Basel uh, ag- accords and, and, and derivatives agreements work have co-evolved with the complexity of, of the system. And, and so when I, when I, I hear the, the logic of the AI flow and I look at historical precedent, I think, aren't we just going to co-develop and co-evolve uh, mechanisms that, that create some degree of prudence and safety uh, around oh, this? I, I hope so, Azim. But the problem is, it's very difficult to be sure that we will do it and that we will do it fast enough. Look at how much time it's taking to deal with the climate change problem and fossil fuel companies. We still haven't solved that problem. It's been like 30 years since it's been very well known by scientists that we are like racing towards a wall. And we haven't found the social solution to this problem. We're getting, you know, making some progress, but we, I don't think we have 30 years for AGI. And let me, let me like, maybe use a different analogy. Mm. There are very rigorous scientific arguments um, showing plausible scenarios where If we train AI systems the way we do now with maximum likelihood and reinforcement learning, we would get systems that we would lose control of and would try to control us. Now, and we we don't have any solution to fix that. So one analogy you can think of is that there's like, you know, it's like in the look up, uh, don't look up movie. There's this asteroid 
that scientists saying, look, I see in, in you know, here are the, the, the evidence that suggests that this may be coming very close to Earth. Um, you have other scientists who are saying, no, 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 don't worry, but they don't have any actual evidence that it's not going to hit Earth. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's just they believe it's going to be fine, just like what you're saying, oh, we'll find a solution. But but what should we do when we are not sure that something catastrophic like this may be hurtling towards us? Well, I think we should be prudent, as you were saying. Mm. And more than that, we should be investing massively to try to make sure the this asteroid is going to be deflected away from Earth, or at least study it enough that we know that it's going to be fine anyways. Yeah, know that it's going to be fine anyways. Part of that would be about this kind of fundamental question, which is, uh, you know, how do we align AI systems to human values? And and I think many of the objections you will have, have heard would be whose values? What is it to have human values? I think right. that the solution already exists. It's called democracy. I mean, it's imperfect. But in a country, you have many people with different values, different, you know, preferences. And we've set up a system for a few hundred years that tries to aggregate all of these things so we can take collective decisions. That's what governments do. Now, they could be imperfect. We could, you know, I think we should improve democracy. But we don't need to solve that problem. You know, we can rely on democracy to tell uh, the AI what it is that we consider to be good and bad. And in fact, laws are supposed to do that. Yeah. Now, the problem is, even if we, you know, give the book of laws to the AI, it doesn't understand it. It could misinterpret it, and the program to maximize rewards could find loopholes, in fact, in order to satisfy all the things we have written, but under some interpretation, they actually still harm us. There is the challenge with uh, with democracy. There are a few faults. One is that less than half of the world's population now lives in a democratic system, and there are a number of countries uh, that... Uh, are getting less democratic according to sort of many external uh, metrics. The, the, the second is that democracies can often make decisions that um, you, know, you as a scientist must shudder when you, you hear them. I think about Germany's decisions yes. about nuclear weapons. Th there's also a really practical question. And as a research scientist, you know, you, you ultimately do practical experiments and um, of that question of what do human values look like in a world where 60, 70% of people don't live in, in democracies, and many of them will have the capabilities to build AI systems. So that becomes quite a complex problem. And I, I wonder how you, how you think about it in the context of yes. aligned and provably beneficial um, AI. So the way I think about this, so, so first of all, democracy, as we know it now, with all its imperfection, is, in my opinion, the least bad of the solutions to aggregating preferences of everyone. Mm. Uh, but let me try to answer your question uh, from a different angle. So I think that in order to avoid the you know, catastrophic asteroid uh, planet killer, we need to address two problems. And, and one is not enough. So one is scientific. Like, how do we solve the control and alignment problem of AI? What, what, is there a way that we could build the AI that is going to be safe if we follow some protocols? And so that would be like the method to deflect the asteroid away from the Earth. Second thing we need to solve is political. 
you know, it is connected to the question of democracy. It is, well, how do we make sure that powerful AI systems, even if we knew how to control them, are not controlled by bad people, bad actors who will grab power, destroy democracy, or even just make mistakes and not follow the protocols properly, and we all lose. Mm. So, so, but this is a this is a like governance problem. It's a political problem. The first one is scientific. The other is political. Yeah, we need to address both. I'm, I'm a computer scientist. I'm not a political scientist, but I recognize that we need to solve both of these problems. You, of course, have a paper in the Journal of Democracy, so you're you're becoming that interdisciplinary <laughs> researcher. The so, I mean, we have some positive precedent. The Montreal Protocol around the ozone hole is a good one. Climate change, of course, is one with much more mixed results. And, and I think one of the things that's been interesting with, with climate change is that what is one of the most powerful forces has not been political, but it's been techno-economic. It's been driving down the cost of solar power so rapidly through yes. learning curves um, and now battery storage that you, there's no green premium for shutting off your coal uh, and going yeah. to solar. It's just cheaper to, to do that. But it doesn't strike me that there is a naturally a, you know, an obvious co-incentive of a le- learning curve around, uh, around AI development. In fact, there's more competition that emerges from it. So then part of the challenge, I guess, is about articulating the, you know, the shared global interest, the public good that is uh, avoiding the, the types of catastrophes that you've alluded to yeah uh, i mean something that would help is if we had a recipe for building a safe lines controllable ai and that it was economically like feasible so that the extra costs would be something companies would be willing to take if it meant having a better image in the public agreeing with the laws and international treaties and so on uh, but it's not clear that we can do that, but we should at least look for that. And of course, we still need those treaties and, and legislation. What are the best avenues for the control and alignment uh, problem? I mean, where, where would you want to see there being specific and detailed and granular research into you know, exact approaches that we might use to to address that issue? Yeah, that's what I'm working on. And I, I think we should put the bar high in the sense that ideally we should strive for guarantees that a, a powerful AI system will not harm humans or at least you know, not create catastrophic harm. And if we could train our systems so that they, they could self-discipline themselves, like they could compute the probability that an action could produce significant harm, then that would essentially solve the AI control problem. Yeah. Uh, but, but of course, right now, the approaches we have give us nothing anywhere close to being able to answer that question with any kind of confidence that a particular action is not going to be dangerous. Yeah, well, we have a, c- a couple of issues, I suppose. One is that the systems themselves anyway don't plan particularly well, so they can't see very far out to the consequences and the second is that we have to instruct them in a bit of a sort of stochastic way you know through the system prompt and through fine-tuning and uh, of course what we've discovered is that that is a very very leaky process you know you can make a few tweaks I think uh, Stuart Russell uh, has a 
research project called Tensor Trust, where they had found tens of thousands of ways of jailbreaking LLMs, but only half as many defenses to those those jailbreaks. And some are really curious. You change a couple of characters in a, a sentence and suddenly the thing is willing to give you recipes yeah. for, for poisons. Uh, the question then is, if you were asking your researchers to look at this issue and the problem is, how do you give me formal safety guarantees out of an AI system? Um, wh- what approach are you going to to give? Is it more tokens and more layers in a transformer? Is it something, so something else? So the way that I, I think about it is related to what, you know, current methods called scaffolding. So on top of a system that answers questions and proposes actions, you want a kind of gator that checks for each particular context and query and proposed action that the probability of, say, significant harm is below a threshold. And then you would get, if those probabilities were well estimated, or at least you had a confidence intervals around them, then you could get conservative decision-making, like acting safely, which means you, you stay far from dangerous places. Um, that's the sort of approach that, that, that I'm working on right now. But it's probably going to take years, or you know, these are open scientific problems, how to train these neural nets so that they can compute these probabilities that I'm talking about uh, and do it efficiently, of course, because if it's intractable, then we're not, you know, we're not better off. But they have some good reasons to think that is feasible. Mm. So one of them is that we can, we, we have, uh, you know, algorithms and mathematical methods that tell us that we can estimate these conditional probabilities with a neural net with a, an accuracy that we can make arbitrarily close to zero just if we can train it more longer and we can make the neural net bigger. So even if we don't get a perfect guarantee, but if we have something that says the more compute we put in this machine, the safer it gets. This is already better than the current scenario where the more compute we put in, the more dangerous it gets. Yeah. Right? So if we can just reverse that thing from more compute equals more danger into more compute equals safer, that would be a huge gain. What's really powerful about that is it's actually incentive in alignment, ultimately, because the, the, you know, the mind frame in the big labs and the hyperscalers and the investors and providers of capital is just simply deploy more capital to get a bigger return. And if that currently that deployment results in systems that are harder to control, but if you could turn that around, then you yeah. you do, I think, see the, the, the positive feedback loop that we've seen in solar cells, right? A scenario which I find the scariest when we get to the point where beyond AGI and let's say we've addressed the planning problem, which we, we have a number of ideas how to deal with, like look at AlphaGo, it's already like a step in the right mm. direction. So this is a problem called... Um, Wire heading is a particular form of reward hacking. There's a lot that's been written about such things. But um, to explain that, let me first use an analogy that mm. everyone can understand. The way we train with reinforcement learning, the way we train these systems is a little bit like the way we train animals. We give them positive rewards when they behave well and you know right. punishments when they don't. Um, now, if you train your dog in this way, the only way it can like maximize its reward is learning the things that you want. But notice that 
it's going to be imperfect. So for example, if you're trying to train your dog or your cat so that it doesn't get on the you know kitchen table, well, because the only way you can teach it is uh, you know give it a punishment is when you are in the kitchen. So you can see that it's doing something bad. Then the problem is it might misunderstand your intention, or at least it doesn't care about intention, right? It's just, well, if I do it while the master is not in the room, I'm good, right? So there's this mismatch between what you intend and what the animal like concludes is what's the right, a good behavior. Now let's replace the dog or cat by a grizzly bear. Now we have another problem, which is even more serious. So let's mm -hmm. say, you know, you give fish to the grizzly bear when it's behaving well. What do you think is going to happen? The grizzly bear is going to see that it can plan a way to grab the fish directly from your hands rather than wait for you to provide when you feel that it's the right behavior. So right. it's taking control of its own reward signals. Sure. And for a computer, you could imagine that, you know, there are some memory slots, so some entries in the computer that represent the reward signal that humans are providing. And the AI is trying to maximize you know, the amount of these good signals that it's getting. So if it can hack the computer where those rewards are recorded, then it could provide itself positive rewards forever. And of course, at that point, it would try to make sure we don't you know, remove that hack. Right. And so you see right away conflict between us and the AI. And if it's smarter than us, it might win that, you know, conflict and, and you know, we lose. These are scientifically challenging scenarios. I, what I mean by them be, that challenging is that logically they make a lot of sense. And because they are within the internal system of the computer it itself, every time you, you think about an external intervention, the computer can run around your intervention. Uh, and yes, you think about yet if another you, intervention if you plug, and it runs around it. But if you plug an AI on the internet, that is exactly what you have. It can yeah. now act in the real world, including on itself. When you get to that point, and I think we've already seen little examples of that with uh, people connecting LLMs to the internet, AutoGPT yeah. being a, a, a good example. And what you see as some of these dynamics play out, I'm not sure if it's necessarily wireheading or just reward hacking of the type that we saw with, with, with RL, but you already see, I guess, sparks of this, of this behavior. But, yeah. Which makes me, I really want to ask you about open source as well, okay. because you, know, you, you were quite concerned with, uh, with GPT-4 and GPT-4 capabilities uh, several months ago. And since then, uh, quite a number of open source groups have released LLMs that are approaching GPT-4 across sort of broad benchmarks and, and as good in certain narrow benchmarks. And, and I, I guess that may make you feel concerned. I, I think a little bit about the old phrase that you have to go with, to war with the army that you have rather than the one you, you want. So when we look at these possible interventions, you know, the open source, if you're concerned about the proliferation of, of these models, but open source is, is there now, and we're going to have to live with it. How do you, do you now think we should make sense of that in a safe and beneficial way? No, I disagree with what you're saying. It is there now, but there's no reason, you know, there's no, um, it could be changed. If we just put laws that say, 
just like in the Biden executive order, that any system beyond a certain level of capability needs to be secured, which means you can't you know, give it to any bad actor. And if you put it open source, that's basically what you're doing. So we just need those laws. Now, laws are imperfect because there will be legitimate act- actors which will follow those laws and there will be you know, others presumably outside the countries where these laws exist that are not respecting. But you would reduce greatly the probability of something bad happening. So um, let, me, let me go back to the question of open source and GPT-4 because mm. I've been a big proponent of open source all my career and I I'm, I'm still am. But open source is beneficial to the extent that it doesn't create more problems than it's solving. So there's something more important than open source, like the survival of humanity, for example, and the well-being of humans. And I would say that open source in AI has been beneficial up to now because we have more researchers you know, trying to actually find the safety failure modes of these systems, and that's good. Um, but it's not guaranteed that at some level of capability above GPT-4, and we don't know where, we might hit a place where no open source is going to be overall more beneficial for society in the sense of reducing the risks, even though you lose a bit on the speed of innovation and things like this, than yeah. than, than open source. So clearly, there's going to be benefits and and you know losses or you know risks. Of course. So. The real question isn't about whether we should have open source or not. This is not for you or I to decide. And it shouldn't be a CEO that have that power because it's going to affect the whole world if we make a huge mistake with that decision. Mm. It should be a democratically taken decision where we, you know, the representatives in our democracy of the collective will decide, okay, here are the pros and cons, and we put the bar somewhere. Where, yeah, below that, fine, it's a good thing. We encourage it. Above that, in terms of capability and and levels of risk, Mm. we say no. The challenge that I have with that, and I want to push back on on that uh, a little bit, is that um, there is is an understanding of the power of governance and good governance and from Montesquieu onwards, the idea that you have the separation of, of powers. And these ideas go back actually into ancient religious texts you know, hundreds and thousands of years earlier. And that the idea that the concentration of power is deeply, deeply problematic. And, and in fact, even, you know, fun, you know, fundamentally, our economies work because they are information processing systems and they work far better when there is a sort of competition of information agents within within that system. So, so there are many disciplines that point to the importance of structures that are distributed, that have checks and balances, that avoid concentrations of, of power. And, and one of the, and I know you absolutely allude to this in your Journal of Democracy piece and in a couple of your, your blog posts as well. I mean, you're aware of the the, the risks of an approach that concentrates power still further to the to the you know, the well-heeled labs, and indeed really specific risks, which is, of course, there's regulatory capture, that that risk, and that they have very, very particular incentives. What, the reason I push back on, on the, the, the suggestion is that one of the things that we've seen over a, a thousand years, tried and tested, is that separation of powers, uh, you know, works 
for the benefit of broad groups of, of humans. When you concentrate those powers, when you try to unpick that separation as recent US administrations have tried to do, you're able to levy harm on qu often quite large large groups. And for me, that principle is one that we have to defend. In some sense, that, that's my asteroid that's up yeah. in space. Yes, I totally agree with you, but there's a logical mistake in what you're saying, which is you're assuming that if we only have, say, you know, a dozen of these frontier AI labs in the world, they are like now in the hands of a few CEOs. But it doesn't have to be that way. As I write in my Journal of Democracy paper, we can replace that concentrated power in the hands of very few people by democratic governance. So the whole point of democratic governance is to make sure that that extreme power that will exist is going to be controlled by you know, some democratic process that takes into account all the stakeholders. And for example, we could imagine having boards on these for these organizations that control the important decisions that these organizations are taking, that, that give a lot of weight to not just the regulator, but, but also civil society, the international community, because this is going to affect the whole world, uh, independent experts. And, you know, and if it's a for-profit organization, people want to make money with this. But, but the point is that the, uh, the collective decision-making can veto things that are directions that, that are dangerous for society. And now there's no like single person that can really decide, oh, we're going to go full steam ahead and, you know, mm. make it open source or, uh, you know, turn it into a, a dangerous AGI because I want to replace humanity yeah. by superhuman AIs. I, I mean, we're all going to be short of time, but I, I'll try to summarize what, where I think that idea sits in the history of ideas, which is it has the the same sort of grand intentional scale of the League of Nations or the United Nations, right? It's a new class of multilateral organization, which which we don't call for um, without sort of due concern, right? And there is a, a picture there that is quite, you know, has a strong vision to it. You call these independent research labs. I called them uh, in one of my essays, observatories. They're the important to have a network of, of independent observatories that are aligned to some type of public of public yes. good, and yes. what, what it, but it, because it's a radical idea, right? It steps outside of the way that, that politicians have thought about the world in which they, you, you know, they 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 have lived. It, it it isn't one that necessarily sits sits particularly easier, right? People don't know which box they should they should put it in. But but the argument that I hear from you is this: this ought to be seen as a public good, as a global public good. Yes. with the resources and the independence and the governance and stewardship that we would expect for, for something like that. Exactly, exactly. And we do have things like that, not, not for very dangerous things, but there's a lot of public goods that are you know, managed in ways that have protected us up to now. You know, think only about the way we're managing you know, dangerous things like biological pathogens or, or potentially dangerous drugs or how we are even collectively internationally managing things like like dangerous pathogens with collective agreements, or even how we were managing nuclear weapons. So these are not easy things, but it's not like we have zero experience in, in doing such things. This is a wonderfully positive uh, place uh, for us to get to the end of our conversation. Uh, I, I would like to ask you one, one last question, uh, really a wish list 
uh, question. Uh, you've done so much work on AI and climate change. When you're looking at that big problem, what what is high on your wish list for the AI tool that you wish could be delivered that could help most move the dial on climate change? So I've been involved in a community in machine learning that is trying to develop machine learning tools for helping scientists. This is sometimes called AI for science. And that includes, you know, medical applications, but but also like discovering new types of, of batteries or carbon capture or better ways of predicting the climate or, uh, you know, managing biodiversity. So things that matter for our environment. And, I, you know, I wish we invested more in these kinds of AI for science research because this, I think, is going to benefit society a lot more than, you know, some, some gadget that's going to make productivity in the office 20% better. Uh, we would agree with you on that, Joshua. We're very uh, in favor of accelerating and improving scientific research and access to it over here at Exponential View. And thank you so much for making the time today. My pleasure. And thanks for all the questions and having me today.